Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly, your news show that reads the news and ingests the news so you don't have to do the same thing and get a little bit of heartburn because heartburn's no good. So welcome back. I am joined by the entire squad this week. I've got Mr. Jim Heskett. Hello. I've got Mrs. Philippa Warner. Hi. And Mr. Nick Thacker. What's up? Who appears to be suffering from Raynaud's disease. I guess you got a little cold toe situation going on right now, huh? Is that a disease? I didn't know that was a yeah. thing. Yeah, Reynolds, man. For everything. Yeah, poor circulation, <clears throat> brother. Poor circulation. So before we get started this week, I wanted to share with you guys that we have received our first cease and desist letter. Oh. Exciting. Yes, yes. So it is actually from Grammar and Grammar's people. They didn't take too kindly to being called racist by Nick and Pippa. And so they sent us a cease and desist. <laughs> Jim, I told them that individual opinions aren't necessarily the opinion of the show. I appreciate that. So I think I may have indemnified us, but you guys might be getting some further problems well, for calling grammar the R word. They don't even want their name associated with hmm. it. So I reap what you sow. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so I was scared. I get scared by uh, legal documents. So, you know, sorry, guys. I do wish to put out there that it is the concept of grammar. Grammar it says no, I'm actually just say grammar's racist. Not even grammar. Concept. It's like the concept Has of grammar uh, come to life or was grammar the name of the I it's a weird email that I got. It, it was just signed Grammar's People. So I don't oh. know. You know how it is. So are we gonna stop? No. We're not yeah. gonna stop. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. I'm not I'm not because I'm not getting sued. So you guys enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Jim is unindemnified from here on out. And he is now uh, yes. part of it. If grammar takes corporeal form and shows up, that will be intriguing. <laughs> what if, what, if grammar, what if grammar just showed up at like the next conference you were at or something? And he's just standing there like, dude, you know, he's like, I talked to R.A. I thought we were good, man. The black guy was on board with me and everybody's hating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry, grammar. We'll talk off air <clears throat> grammar. We got some things to work on. So what's going on this week, guys? Other than me poking fun at grammar. I was going to say, I just found out, you know, I got to cease and desist. Oh, well, I didn't forward Concept. it to you. So technically you can. Oh, like, I haven't been served. Okay. Exactly. Wow. I don't know I'll, anything. I'm playing <laughs> the middle ground here. So no one's going to get jammed up. I, I don't think guys. you can get served via email, right? I mean, they got to show up on your certified, certified yeah. door. You show yeah. up on your, on your front step. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You get served at, a lot, Nick. At this point, no one knows where I live. So, you know. <laughs> Even you, what's your address? You want to serve me? Why don't you go let the IRS know where I am? Once you find me, they've been looking for me for a while. They've been trying to hunt me down for a year now. Right on, man. Right on. Well, all right, guys. Yeah. Well, dude, I was about to call for the drop, and you're in the middle of like chugging a drink, and then like, oh yeah, there's no immediately drop. dooms us to failure. You no, know, there's like, no drop. There's I want to see my office here. We're we're bare bones today. There's no drop. Okay. All right. Well, I wanted to give us a fighting chance, dude. I didn't want no, to like, no, you were like this. Oh, look, it's the thought that counts. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Everybody listening, think of some music. Ready? Go. What's that called? Fanfare or something? 
No, what is it? Sounds like called? Mission Impossible. I don't know. It is an impossible mission to get through this episode, but we're going to KO Soldier Next Forward. Week we get new season desists from yes. whoever yeah, produced think- Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this week's season assist may come from Andy Hunter of bookshop.org. Yeah, our first story comes from him. And I don't know if you guys see this uh, kind of clickbaity title here, and it's titled Every Book Lover Should Fear This Graph. And what the graph is, is it's Amazon's share of the book market, actual and projected growth. Good Lord, growth over the next several years. And he's anticipating that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will control nearly 80% of the consumer book market by the end of 2025. Every single book lover should worry. And after we're done worrying, we must change the way we buy books. Now, do you guys get the same thing from this graph? Is the sky falling? I don't know. We've had like a year and a half of like graphs and scary things that are supposed to represent real statistical values of something we should care about. Mm. And I think I'm going to call bullshit on pretty much everything until I can see some like peer-reviewed, actual researched data in Excel format so I can go throw it in and mess around with it. Not that I'm going to do that. I'm way too lazy for that. I'm just saying, if unless you've done that and mm. put the work in, I'm just going to look at a graph and be like, all right, cool. Like, Where'd you get this information? You might be the first person that I've ever heard ask for an Excel spreadsheet. So good on you. Like I said, I want you to create it. I don't want to actually mess with it. I just want to know that you've done the work. So I don't have to. My my pirated Microsoft will not allow me to create Excel spreadsheets. So what about you? Come from Microsoft. So, well, let me, me, because at the bottom of this article, he does give his information. He gives his sources, but he's, all he's doing is taking someone else's research, which I had the same question for them. So like this, this first one's statista.com, Amazon book market share USA. You know, if you click that link, it says 2015 book market was roughly 35%. From the second quarter to third quarter by 2015 by format. So, like, is that the same exact, you know? So, where is he getting quarter? his 2016, 2018 data from? Because those aren't cited. Right. So, that's yeah. kind of what I'm getting at is like, well, okay, you want to dig into this pretty deeply. It sounds like this guy may have just wanted to write a scare, worry all, I'm antitrust, Amazon, take them down kind of post and get us all getting our pitchforks ready. I don't know if there's any science behind this. Yeah, judging by this graph, the real scare here is that by 2035, Amazon will have like 150% of the market. And that's what's really terrifying. <laughs> we'll be buying. Exactly. <laughs> Amazon will be buying our books back from us. <laughs> no, I mean, this whole article is just kind of like, Wah, capitalism isn't fair. I mean, right. it right. pretty much ignores the idea that brick and mortar was a dying business model before Amazon even came along, you know? Brick and mortar is not long for this world. And if your indie bookshop doesn't have value beside just from selling books, you know, if you don't have like cats that hang out there and chairs for people to read, if it's not a place that people want to come to, to have an actual brick and mortar experience, then you can't expect Amazon's just got a better business model. And this article is does paint a really scary picture. And then there's some things in here that are just blatantly false or misleading. Like it talks about if Amazon owns all the book market, it's going to exclude marginalized voices, which is just ridiculous. Like there's yeah. no, this is just trying to tap into some kind of cancel culture fear that we don't want Amazon to be in charge because then they get to decide whose books get published and then marginalized voices and minorities won't be able to publish books anymore. And there's just well, no truth to that at all. 
Yeah, I would also like to point out that the rise of self-publishing, largely fueled by Amazon, <laughs> coincided with a surge in marginalized voices being able to publish because they were not having to go through publishers. Exactly. So, He's just arguing that Amazon shouldn't be a gatekeeper because then gatekeepers are bad. When the whole thing Amazon succeeded from was taking the gatekeeping away from publishing. Now, yeah, sure, maybe it's coming back as they get more and more powerful, quote unquote. But I'd like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in here. You know, the popular books are so deeply discounted on Amazon, no source for that, that all other bookstores have found it hard to compete. Who other what other bookstores are we talking about here? Why does Amazon sell books at prices so low they lose money? First of all, I don't sell books at prices sell so low that I'm losing money. I sell books and I make a profit. It seems like he's just kind of making that up, which is fine. You know, you write an article that's an opinion piece, that's great. But here's the deal, man. Like maybe books were too damn expensive to begin with. Hmm. Like maybe we don't want to spend $35 for a, a hardcover book because that's ridiculous. So maybe Amazon's making it more affordable and people are choosing to shop there, thus making them more and more powerful. Like I don't think it's Amazon forcing us to buy books from them, right? I don't think they're saying, you know, you have no other choice but to buy it from me. I think other companies need to wake up and figure out how to pay their authors better, do better marketing, you know, promo opportunities, whatever, and people will flock to them. Because I know as an author, I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for Barnes & Noble to wake up and say, well, you know, there's a lot of authors out there. What if we just didn't treat them like shit and offer them more money? Maybe they'll come and sell with us. Although I will well, say let me talk about lost. readers because readers are the worst. <laughs> That's later. That's later. Keep that in your pants for now. All right. Okay. Okay. I'll put I'm sorry, Pippa. Go it. ahead. Uh, no, I will say that the lost leader thing—that's not entirely outside realm of possibility. That's something that, for instance, Walmart has done for many years. Is they'll go into a new town and everything will be priced below what's in the town already, as long as it takes for a whole bunch of the competitors to shut down because they've just got deeper pockets. It's not out of the question that Amazon would do that. That said, it's not like their long-term strategy, but there's also a lot to be said for the fact that Amazon has superior algorithms to almost every other online store and has made shopping easier and selling easier than almost every other store. And so I feel like that continuously gets missed mm. when people write stories about their market dominance because mm -hmm. it's just easier to deal with them most of the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they get rewarded for that, right? So that's good stuff. It kind of feels like we're kind of at the point where some of these people are just kind of missing the point, the big players, right? Kind of like Blockbuster just kind of missed the point. Like it could have just crushed Netflix from the beginning and just really cemented its share. And it just never did. You know, they came out with Blockbuster boxes six years after red boxes were out. Like, what good does that do you? You know what I mean? So I don't know. You know, I hope that indie bookstores can adapt with the times. I actually just got an email this week from an indie bookstore trying to buy one of my books that I don't have formatted for print yet. So that was fun, you know, but I don't think they're going to last. So in any event, let's move on to the next story. So there's this uh, new movie coming out here. This article comes to us via Jim Heskett from Cinema Blend. It's uh, Matt Damon explains why writing Goodwill Hunting with Ben Affleck was inefficient compared to working on their new movie. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know, there's a new movie. It's a period piece. They've all got swords and mullets. And apparently they all kind of wrote their own parts. And it looks like it's kind of interesting. Uh, but Jim, you wanted to kind of chat about this a little bit. What you got about the story? Well, this reminded me of, I used to work in the software industry and we had in product meetings that you would always talk about scope creep, which was you would start off a software project saying, we're going to make this new widget that will do A, B, and C, and it should take us three months. And as soon as you start planning it, you say, well, if we're going to do C, we might as well add D because it's really not that much more work. 
And then that three months turns into four months. And that's called scope creep as your small projects get bigger and bigger as, you know, more cooks throw their stuff into the soup. And with the way he explained writing Goodwill Hunting was basically just like that. And it reminded me, this article hit on with me because it reminded me a lot of my first book. The first book I wrote took me two years. And I had written so many drafts and made so many changes, I actually kept a change log of what I had changed because it was like problematic virtue version 3.4. I added this character and subtracted this character because I was doing things that were affecting the whole book. So I had to keep track of all my changes. And that's just, it, se- it made perfect sense at the time, but it just seems ridiculous now that there's no reason why a book should go through 12 drafts or have huge changes like that. And I just wanted to open that up for a discussion. So what do you guys do, Nick or or Pippa, to keep yourself from having to get caught up in scope creep from expanding the vision that you have for your book into something different? For me, I definitely resonate with what Jim said. My first book was a mess and I thought I was never going to write another book. So I better put all the ideas I ever had into this one. Mm. And that actually was a blessing in disguise because I just couldn't get them all in there. And what happened was I ended up kind of keeping a, what I call the swipe file, which is just articles or you know, research. At the time, it was literally a, it was a green folder. Uh, and I would tear out like popular science articles and put them in this folder where I would print something. And it was a hard copy thing that I would carry around with me. And that became the idea generating machine for books two, three through you know 30. And over time, I've gotten much more efficient. I know generally, I'm trying to find the note here, that I have something that I wrote Let's see if I can find it because it's kind of an interesting way of approaching it, I guess. So I wrote this down something scientific, something historic, something exotic. And then I sort of just de- defined them for, for me. For example, for scientific, a bad guy acquires, finds, or develops something scientific. And I put that in quotes because it's like technologically, you know, or biologically or whatever. Um, some science is involved that can be used to harm or threaten others. And then, of course, the flip side is the good guy could use it for, for good. And I did that for historic and exotic. And so my, my goal now for a Harvey Bennett book, at least, is to have one of each of those things, but no more than that, because any more than that, I start to get way off into the weeds and it gets way too complicated. Can't wrap, wrap my mind around it. And so if I have one science thing, one history thing, and one like, I say exotic, that's basically, they have to travel somewhere new. They have to go somewhere that's interesting, right? Um, in order to solve the mystery. So it's basically a science thing and a history thing. And I try to figure out how to combine them together. So for this current book I'm working on, it's Alexander the Great and uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. I'm not sure how to say that, whatever that is. And I'm trying to wrap those together in a way that's obviously fiction, but based in, you know, Alexander the Great was real and Barre syndrome is real. And so that's anyway, let's get off, off a tangent. But I have only come to this after like 20 books, right? And so... It's taken me forever to get to this method, but what I've realized is not that I need to find more and more ideas, it's that I need to find fewer. I need to just get one thing that I can write about historical and one thing I can write about scientific and then put them in an exotic location and just sort of see what happens. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my little method for it, but I found that to work really well. All that knock on wood, I haven't written a word in like a month, so we'll see if I ever do it again. I'll say that. What about you, Pippa? Well, there's a couple. One is that I tend to write the blurb before I write any of the outline, even. You're, you're one of those people. Can you explain this process to me? Other, I don't understand it. Can you tell okay, me? Okay, so here's what happened to me with my first novel, which may shed some light on it, was I went through my first novel, which, much like Jim and Nick, was a complete shit show. 
And I got to the end and I was trying to do the blurb for it. And so I'm looking up all of these, you know, this is my new author task for that week, right? Learn how to write a blurb. So I'm going through and I'm trying to write the blurb. And it's difficult, right? Because it's a difficult process. And so it takes me longer than it should to realize the reason I can't write a blurb is that the story is fundamentally flawed. There wasn't one consistent villain. Mm -hmm. There wasn't one, like it was interwoven in a way that didn't make sense. And I would have known that if I'd written the blurb first. And I find it immensely difficult to go through. I mean, part of this is that I write epic fantasy and there are usually several different sub stories weaving together or several points of view. But I find it way easier to define the main story and then make sure everything ties into it as I expand hmm. than to take the whole story and distill it down to one thing. Hmm. There's a book by Libby Hawker called Gotta Read It that I highly recommend. And she kind of talks about this, about how you could write the blurb before the book, because she makes breaks it down into a simple formula. It's like the hero, and this is what the hero wants. This is what's standing in the hero's way. This is what will happen if the hero doesn't get what they want. And then once you have all those blanks filled in, then you could write the book or the blurb, because you have enough information for both. What I would like is a good resource on how to write blurbs for multi-point-of-view books, because I have yet to find good resources. So if anyone listening has a book... I know how to I'll, do that. Awesome. I, I'll talk to Jim after this. Yeah. Also, I recommend Libby Hawker's book, uh, Take Off Your Pants. Mm. Mm -hmm. Also good. I recommend Libby Hawker's everything. Yeah, pretty much. She's pretty, pretty dope. Libby Hawker's pretty dope. That's really interesting. You know, I, I hear people that say that, and I had never heard someone kind of like, quantify their process with the blurb first i don't know that i could because i don't really know what's happening sometimes <laughs> so <laughs> i don't think i'm organized enough to understand what i'm doing so but that's maybe i'll try that next time and, uh, when i get shot right yeah, yeah when i get swamped i'll i'll hit you up and be like pippa what the this hell am i fault. what the hell am i doing <laughs> so all right so this next story is go actually you know what I skipped the story you or did. I skipped. I did. I'm bad. I apologize. Um, it's not really a story. It's a question that I want you guys to ask. I think that because we uh, have all kind of done this a lot and we all kind of know our process and what we're doing and how all the pieces of the indie world fit together. Uh, sometimes we gloss over some things that when I was new, I would have no idea what the hell we were talking about. So can somebody kind of explain what Ingram Spark is to me and what role it serves in the indie world? Someone who understands it. Uh, yeah, I can. Um, Please explain like I'm five. What's that on Reddit? E-L like I'm five? Yeah. E-L-I-5. Like e yeah. Um, yeah. Please. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Ingram Spark is just a subsidiary of the parent company Lightning Source International, which is pretty much the biggest book printer in the United States. Uh, according to who you ask, but they do a lot of traditional published stuff and used to be able to go through, you can still, I think, go to Lightning Source and set up an account as a publisher and print books and all that. Um, and I did that back in the day in order to get my hardcover books printed. You can do paperback there too, but I think at the time we had Lulu and CreateSpace and CreateSpace, which is now Amazon, of course. Anyway, they created this self-published portal called Ingram Spark. And it's the same printing and it's the same company and service, but they just make it a little bit easier. Uh, the interface is much better. It's a little cheaper. You don't have to pay for like, well, I, I don't want to get into details because it's been a while since I've actually printed through them, but they ended up being a little bit cheaper and just more kind of uh, single user or single book friendly rather than 
Lightning Source really was geared toward uh, big publishers printing a you know big stock all at once. So if you want a hardcover book as an indie, Ingram Sparks kind of the way to go. Just yeah, I mean they do have ebook option opportunities available, but there's just no reason to use them. There's, there's better options for that. The main reason I used Ingram Spark, and I haven't logged into the website in probably at least a year, so I don't know if you can still even do this, but if you order a proof from CreateSpace or now KDP Print, if you just want one copy of a book, it's going to say have that banner across it that says proof. CreateSpace, they didn't used to do that. They would just include a printed page that said proof, but now it's right across the front of the book. So if you want like a one-off printing of something, you can get it from Ingram Spark. And so what I used to do on the regular was I have a lead mag that's a full-length novel, and it's the only one of the books in that series that's not in print. And so what I did was I set up an Ingram Spark account and I made a print version of that book. And then I printed off like five copies. And then every few months I would do a book giveaway to my readers and they go crazy, you know, because like it's, this is the only copy of this book in existence and it doesn't have an ISBN. It doesn't say proof across the front. And Ingram Spark was the only place I knew where you could get that. Like a friend of ours had a custom children's book made for his kid and he got it printed through Ingram Spark. So he didn't have to get an ISBN, didn't have to get a proof copy, all that stuff. He just did it through Ingram Spark. Interesting. That's a pretty good idea there, Jim. It's a pretty good idea. Okay. So if anybody is still confused about Ingram Spark, then hit us up. We'll talk more about it. Maybe we'll talk about it in Facebook or something. I think that was a very good primer, folks. I appreciate your assistance. Okay. Next story that we have here. It is from a social media just for writers. And the headline is a podcast will build your author platform. So as I'm looking at a group of veteran podcasters and veteran authors, do you guys agree that a podcast will build your author platform? No. (laughs) (laughs) I need a little more, Jim. I need a little more. I'm looking at the timer. Sure, sure, sure. I I can say more about that. Oh, no. Hell no. (laughs) Like in 2016, I pitched Simon Whistler to have me on the Rocking Self-Publishing podcast, which in 2016 was like the big deal podcast at that time. And I don't know why he let me on. I'd only published a couple of books. I guess I had a good pitch or something, but he let me on and he knew I was a new author. And so right before we started, he said, Hey, don't, I just want to make sure, you know, don't expect that you're going to sell a bunch of fiction off this interview. And I was like, huh, I hadn't even really thought about that. You know, all four of us right here are literally at this moment recording a podcast. And I would expect none of us here are expecting to sell fiction books from this podcast. Since we've been doing this show, I've released a couple of books and I haven't even mentioned it on the show because there's no point. I'm not trying to sell my thrillers to authors. And what this article doesn't do a good enough job of is explaining why it's okay for nonfiction authors to have a podcast and why it's not okay for fiction authors. Because it just says, you're an author, so you're an expert. So you should talk about what you're an expert on. And then it specifically says... So let me just say, if you're a nonfiction author and you're making a podcast that's in your niche, that's great. That's fine because that's the kind of platform you want to build. But then the article says, if you're a fiction author, you can talk about the writing process. And I want to say unequivocally, don't make a podcast to talk about your writing process. Your readers do not care how the sausage is made. They might pretend like they care because they're just interested in hearing from you, but they really don't care. They don't care how many drafts it took you to write the book. The, or, now, this or, is actually interesting because one of the top requests I get from Patreon and some of my most engaged with newsletters are actually about like the background to the point that I am, in fact, doing a podcast right now 
with chapters of my book and stuff in after that with how the book was written because enough people asked that I was finally like, okay. But but do you think those people are authors who are also fans of your work or writers who are also fans of your work or they're just genuine readers who are interested no, they're in readers. the process? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But the weird thing is like that one was a thing that I kept being like, I don't like showing people my drafts. Like the closest I've ever come to punching someone at work was when they looked over my shoulder at a handwritten draft. So it's uncomfortable for me, but people keep asking. So you're saying you have a podcast where you break down like chapter by chapter, like kind of how you wrote it. Mm -hmm. Damn. So we'll see how that works. Hmm. We'll see if they actually read the thing they or listen to the thing they ask me for. Hmm. I have no idea. But the point is, Pip is making something that her fans want. Mm. that's true and so that's the thing so if you're a romance author make a podcast about the greatest romantic heroes in fiction of all time and then each week is a different romantic hero if you're a thriller author make a podcast about true crime or thrilling things in the news i don't even know but you make a podcast have written if i tried yeah Mm. just make something that your readers want Mm -hmm. readers want stuff and it's our job to give it to them and make them pay for it Mm. Can I add something to that, Jim? Yeah. I, I think no. make something readers want. But, <laughs> and this, this, it's probably going to sound really obvious, but I think it's misleading. It's misleadingly intuitive. I don't know. I think make something your readers want, but make something you want to do. Because I don't think there's any successful podcasts that have only had five episodes. Yeah. So it's one of those things, and it's kind of hard to tell if you've never podcasted before, but it's kind of hard to know if you're going to want to stick it out for the long run. But I really don't think there's any traction to be gained from any podcast that's got fewer than 100 episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm this is a totally arbitrary number, but it takes a lot of episodes and a lot of time building that traction and basically trust with any listener who's going to come on and want to have a library of stuff to listen to. So I think, yeah, if you can find something your readers want, you could potentially find success and find some new readers. but the hard part is that if you're not a celebrity already, no one's really heard of you. You're going to find a reader by them finding your book and reading your book. And then they're going to find your podcast, but they're already your reader. So I don't really know that they're going to, you're going to find new readers this way effectively, unless you are just really killing it podcasting. And that brings you back to the hundred episodes. Yeah. Thing. What I'd say for that one is this definitely falls under the old Hugh Howie marketing technique of, you know, he, said at one point, I don't reach out to new readers. I don't advertise to new readers. My entire marketing strategy is to make my existing readers feel special and mm. give them exactly what they want so that they will be the marketing vector. Mm. That and makes sense. on the one hand, that worked really well for Hugh Howie. On the other hand, that's not everyone's best technique. And mm. I actually don't think that's the only marketing vector that you should use. And I'm mm. trying to get better with other marketing myself, but it's a good thing to remember as only do what you can keep doing, what you can sustain. Yeah. And so, for instance, I didn't start talking about this podcast until I'd recorded almost all of the first book because mm. I wanted to make sure that I could get it all done before <laughs> starting mm. to release. <laughs> yeah, that definitely makes sense. That definitely makes sense. All right. So let's see. To wrap up, if you're nonfiction, a podcast could help you like a subject matter expert in the space. If you're fiction, as long as you're doing something that's sustainable and repeatable that your readers would like, then it has a potential for success. So it's a big deal podcasting. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. So uh, don't enter it lightly, but if you do go for it, cause that's a lot of fun. So, all right, guys, I think we are going to skip the last story. And I think that we'll uh, about wrap it up for the day. 
Uh, you guys got anything that you need to add? Any mulligans or alibis? Well, I was just going to say that the last article was from The Guardian, which is British. And so you did take a rant away from me, but I, I will let it slide this time because I did get to slip in earlier about yeah. how readers are the worst. Yeah. So I think we're good now. I didn't take it away from you. It's just a rant delayed. You know what I mean? That's it, fair. It, I'll, it, we'll get to I'll double week. down on my rant for next week. Then. Yeah, I hope yeah, you... really just let it marinate. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? It's festering right now. Like, let yeah, it be so bad. You over. got to put like a weightlifting belt on before you start. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I might actually watch like a uh, hot fuzz or something just to throw something at the screen. Yeah. Just to get primed. All right. Right just, on. Yeah. Right on. Well, uh, for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.